Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm co-host Gabriel Kraza. And I'm other co-host Nicholas Lorimer. And we are uh, sitting on a Tuesday afternoon. It's beautiful. The sun is shining. We seem to have turned the corner of the winter of our discontent well, into the great spring of our discontent. Uh, <laughs> some things change, some things don't. Um, one of the things that hasn't changed is that this podcast is coming to you later than planned. Uh, yeah. But it was a long weekend, and so we hope you all did enjoy your long weekend, if you had one. Yeah. If you had one, I, is, I, I usually like to have a braai on Women's Day, but there was no braaiing. What do you usually do on Women's Day? Uh, the same thing I do on every weekend, <laughs> which is not much. <laughs> I, don't, I don't much uh, do – I'm not so big on doing something special for public holidays, I'm afraid. I'm quite boring like that. Yeah, try to take over an imaginary world on a video game. Yeah, that's that's pretty much accurate. So, uh, I suppose I'm the same. I guess I guess Women's Day is. I'm I'm trying to think if I've ever had like a a Women's Day celebration in the past. My- the reason I the reason the reason I'm challenging myself to this is because a lot of my friends that I've been speaking to have been feeling super gloomy and glum and are blaming it all on the plague and the lockdown. And I think that's partially a mistake because my thesis for many years has been that in Joburg, uh, which I know best in South Africa, social life kind of grinds to a halt in the last couple of weeks of July and the first week or two of August because you usually have a cold snap. It's usually a time when the rich guys go overseas or the middle-class guys go to the bush on the weekend or do something like that and push lobs like me kind of uh, stay at home and drink red wine and smoke cigarettes and, uh, and pray for better weather. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's usually a really gloomy time until the, until the last cold front snaps uh, and is done with. And then, and then, and then we usually come out with it. And in, I, you know, I was an art critic, I always thought the jo- Joburg social scene really picked up with the Joburg Art Fair, biggest art fair on the continent, really quality. When is that of, usually held? Like, it would usually be this weekend. Ah, it's a shame. And then but after I, that, it's all the spring openings and theater gigs and rock concerts. and My, you know. my favorite uh, description of South African public holidays um, is that, I think it was by Indomiso and Kobo. I think he's, he's a, it's a comedian and a columnist who writes often for the Sunday Times. Anyway, I'm a big fan of his book, uh, at least for its humorous qualities, uh, Some of My Best Friends Are White, mm. uh, which came out a couple of years ago. And I can't remember exactly how the paragraph went, but basically he said that the ANC or the government expects us to go sit in a stadium every you know, public yep. holiday, whether it be Women's Day or whatever, and be called the masses by Katlem Botlante. At least and if you, many and if South you wait Africans... for long enough, yeah, if you wait for long enough, you get a shirt and some hot lunch. Exactly. Many South Africans were saved from this uh, dreary uh, practice by, by, by COVID. So at least it did some good in that sense. Okay, so this is us, two crickets in a thorn tree, looking for the silver lining in a very dark <laughs> and gloomy storm cloud. And uh, yeah, it's, first, it's getting it's getting to people. You can really you can really 
feel it in the air. Uh, yeah. I know I'm feeling it as well. Everyone's just tired. Yeah. So let's let's take let's transport our listeners to somewhere far away. You were about to say. Yeah, no. So I, I was I was going to take us to uh, another dimension, uh, the theocratic world, uh, an organization that's been around for over a thousand years, by some accounts two thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, worshipped by what. 700 million people something like that something like that it is i think of all the single religious denominations in the world it's probably the biggest depending on and, how you define religious denomination yeah and uh and it's had a really tough ride uh for various reasons uh but but one of them sort of made famous through the movie was the spotlight revelations of not just a few bad apples uh in the Catholic Church abusing children sexually, but it being a fairly widespread practice in part because when complaints were brought forward, they'd be brought forward to the church and not the police because people would feel like loyalty demands that or fealty to the church demands that. And then within the church, rather than expel and uh, criminally punish uh, perpetrators, they'd sort of try and deal with it in a sort of turn the other cheek kind of way, you know, send someone to a different place and hope that they get their act together. And and that was not the right way to try and deal with it. Uh, and I and I and I I think I'm on pretty solid ground saying not even the right way, sort of in in the Christian doctrine. I think Christian doctrine for a very long time yeah. has sort of made peace with uh, law and order, with secular powers dealing with secular uh, crimes being the best way to 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 secure protection for the vulnerable um since then some things have happened some things have changed in particular there's been a change in pope and nicholas has got a sort of interesting take on what to make of pope francis uh now in his eighth or ninth or tenth year uh as as the high pontiff of the catholic church yeah, so I just want to start off by saying that I, that I'm not a Catholic, and I'm not super deep into the into into Catholic circles and stuff. I do take a lot of interest in Catholicism and the Catholic world, so I uh, do consider that I am speaking kind of as an outsider and as a bit of a uh, a layman on this topic. But I think it's something that deserves to be talked about because um, we don't uh, we've we've made this point on the Daily Friend podcast before, which is that a lot of the world really doesn't take religious organizations actually that seriously. And I think part of the reason is that the proportion of atheists and non-religious people in the sort of journalism and intellectual circles is much higher than it is in the general population. And so these institutions, which are very old and very powerful, or used to be at least, uh, and have a lot of influence over people's lives and how they view themselves, are kind of ignored. Um, and I think it's worth talking about about the new pope in particular. So I will admit that on this topic, I am quite heavily influenced by the Spectator's Religion podcast, which is called Holy Smoke. It's run by a guy called Damien Thompson. Um, but he's made a pretty convincing case about Pope Francis. So let me lay out kind of how Pope Francis was received initially. And I'm sure most of our listeners will remember this. Uh, but his predecessor, Benedict the... What is he, Benedict the Sixteenth, something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was the first pope to voluntarily resign in something like seven hundred years, 
it's been a very long time since a pope willingly stepped down. Yeah, and a great move, I think, in a way. Yeah, it's difficult to say for sure because um, it gets very much into internal Vatican Catholic politics, um, which is, of course, a topic that is very, very old indeed. As long as there has been a Holy Father, there has been politics around who's going to be the Pope, pretty much, uh, since after the first one. Um, and he he came... So after Benedict stepped down, right... It was allegedly for ill health, but there was a lot of uh, speculation that part of the reason was the child sex abuse scandals and stuff that had rocked the church over the past decade or so, um, that he hadn't been able to deal effectively with them and that he was just kind of feeling a bit old and weary and that he thought that the best thing for the church would be for him to step down so that kind of some new life could come in and someone with a lot more uh, energy to take to take over. So we got the first pope from the Southern Hemisphere, um, an Argentinian. Uh, I can't remember his original name because popes, of course, change their name when they become pope. But he changed it to Pope Francis, and he came in on a big tide of, I would say, kind of media intelligentsia acclaim. Um, he was hailed as being a very liberal pope uh, who was going to kind of change things away from the traditionalists. He was hailed as being a maverick. Um, he he did some very early stunts about. Uh, you know, getting rid of fancy papal clothes and not sitting on fancy chairs and, you know, embracing the vile poverty stuff, at least publicly. Um, and so that made him quite popular with a lot of people to begin with. Yosa, of course, had some scathing critiques of capitalism and uh, its environmental destruction, things like that, which made him very popular on the left. And he sort of came in on this tide of goodwill. And after that, I think a lot of people really just sort of forgot about it outside of the Catholic world. But Pope Francis uh, continued away, and he had a bunch of bad habits, which quickly... Can I, can I just say before you get into the bad habits? Yeah, yeah. I, I was, at the time, a huge fan of Pope Francis. And yes, in and, many ways, I, and, and I, I remained very... You were not alone. Of, he he uh, occupies a sort of affectionate part. Like, if I'm world leaders, really important people, I think of him quite fondly. Yes. Uh, I think he may be the first pope to tweet. I'm not actually sure. Um, he was he was definitely the second pope to tweet. That's for sure. Uh, oh, oh, and and maybe the first. He may. I think he was the first. Anyway, uh, you're not alone. There were a lot of people who were very popular. His popularity amongst Catholics, I think, was originally pretty high, and amongst non-Catholics, the Catholic Church became much more favorably viewed after Francis was elected. Um, but he had a number of bad habits. One of them was that. He kept giving these interviews and vague statements about theological doctrine, which is, of course, very important in the church. Things like um, there was a question about whether um, priests in the Amazon who belong to sort of isolated tribes out there should be able to keep their wives, um, even though this is not allowed in church doctrine. Uh, there was stuff about whether women were going to be ordained as priests. Uh, he made kind of some sort of vague statements um, to uh gay catholics about their place in the church which is slightly different from the original doctrine and what was problematic about these i think for a lot of catholics was that he often doesn't take a definitive stance on these issues he's kind of suggests support for the liberal position but then doesn't publicly come out and endorse his own kind of uh, policy there so all this has really done is drive internal faction fighting and ideological contest within the church in a very uh, big way and now that the two factions have 
you know, increasingly fought each other tooth and nail in various committees and synods of the church and that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's not great because he's he's definitely left the church more divided than it was previously. Uh, and then some scandals started to come out about them. There was a bunch of ones connected to his past when he was an Argentinian bishop about how he had allegedly been covering for corrupt uh, cardinals in Argentina or, or corrupt uh, church officials and priests in, in, in Argentina. Um, the, the scandal that really brought this whole, his entire pontificate to my attention was when uh, the case of Cardinal McCarrick. So there was a bunch of inquiries a few years ago into uh, church sexual abuse, mostly in the 60s and 70s in uh, America, in places like, I think, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, that kind of part of the world. And what they found was that there was a significant cover-up of sexual abuse of minors in the Catholic Church of that period. And one of the people implicated was a cardinal, a guy called McCarrick, Theodore McCarrick. Now, Theodore McCarrick was sanctioned by Benedict. He was sent into a kind of life of penance exile. You will have no more public life because of your alleged involvement in personally uh, uh, abusing children and also covering up for others who abuse children. These are still allegations, but there's been quite a lot of testimony and evidence to suggest that there's at least something to be taken seriously here. Um, and what Francis did was upon sending, uh, upon taking the, the papal throne, um, reappointed McCarrick into public life again and basically promoted him. And McCarrick was a big supporter of him. So that was quite disturbing because it seemed like it was effectively an internal political decision to once again uh, reward a, a child abuser. Now, um, since since these allegations came out, however, he's been stripped of his cardinal rank. So he's kind of back out of the limelight again. But until it became public, it looked like the Pope was basically covering for this guy. Yeah. So that that I think is a pretty bad mark against him. And there have been several other allegations of this, but this is the one I know the best about. But I think the most disturbing thing about Francis's pontificate, and this is something that really the mainstream media has not really looked at particularly, has been the Catholic Church's deal with China, the People's Republic of China. So, of course, uh, in China, uh, Christians, as are basically any religious people, are quite aggressively persecuted. Um, there was a wellness health movement, which is sort of kind of Buddhist, kind of Chinese traditionalist, called the Falun Gong, who have been brutally suppressed in China. There's, of course, the Uyghur Muslims in Western China, uh, in, in uh, uh, Xinjiang province, yeah, yeah. who are being uh, possibly... It's difficult to say, but it possibly subject to genocide of a kind now. Forced sterilizations, forced abortions, labor camps, uh, re-education, all sorts of brutalities. Um, and often targeted explicitly because of their religious devotion. And Christians are the same as well. Uh, churches often have, although they're technically, uh, they're sort of allowed under Chinese law. They're often abused. Churches are often demolished or have their priests harassed or arrested for kind of no good reason. And the Catholic Church is one of the churches that was under a lot of persecution in China. Um, it's not known how many Chinese Christians there are, but some people estimate it could be even up to 10% of the population. Yeah, um, which would make it more church-going Christians than in all of Europe. Basically, yes. Not including us. Uh, so it is one of the very important battlegrounds for the Catholic Church if it wants to see itself perpetuating and, and surviving over the next couple of decades. 
And what had effectively happened was two tiers of the Catholic Church had emerged. There was what's called the Patriotic Association, which was the official Chinese Catholic Church, which was recognized by Beijing. It was started by Mao, and basically it was a project to co-opt Catholic Christians in China into being, you know, aligned with the Communist Party. And so it often mixes uh, Chinese officialdom and Communist Party propaganda with Christian teaching. And like, instead of a Virgin Mary, they have Mother China, and they often include sayings from Xi Jinping alongside Jesus Christ. So Can I just swing in here with a, a yeah, quick yeah. historical uh, precedent. One of my favorite uh, sort of stories about how Christianity went wrong is from China in the 19th century. I can't remember the name of the emperor, uh, but I think it was before the Boxer Revolution. Uh, you've got a you've got a contender for the for the Chinese throne who claims that he is the younger brother of Jesus. Uh, I think it's called the the Taiping Rebellion. Yeah, that's the Taiping, and 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 part of what I love about that is that that means Mary really avoided menopause for 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 quite a while. It's quite a medical marvel that. I mean, <laughs> yes. the virgin birth. I know people usually get hung up on the virgin birth. But if Mary managed to avoid menopause for 2,000 years, I think that's even more oppressive. Um, so this was, this was in 1850 to 1864. The guy's name was, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, Hong Jiquan, I think. Yeah. Uh, and he, he founded a, a, a breakaway state in China called the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. And he had, among other things, he claimed to be, uh, you know, the brother of Christ. So that and uh, yeah, and literally the brother, not sort of metaphorically, and and that kind yeah. of silly way of corrupting Christianity. Unfortunately, yeah, it led to major the, warfare. The yeah, the Taiping Rebellion is one of the worst wars in all of human history. It resulted in twenty to thirty million dead people. Basically, it was like absolutely the, the, catastrophic. Yeah, bloodiest thing in the nineteenth century. Uh, much, much more. Pe many more people died there than sort of in the Napoleonic Wars, the Crimean War. So on. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. These so, guys so basically, a similar game of trying to corrupt, yeah, uh, or co-opt, co-opt Chinese, uh, co-opt Christianity, yeah, to 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 serve local political Chinese interests. Um, so, this this patriotic association is recognized by Beijing, but there's an underground Catholic Church which was loyal to Rome, refused to accept the orders from the Communist Party in China, and operated far more you know, as you'd expect the Catholic Church to operate. And, uh, uh, you know, officially as part of efforts to reduce the persecution of Christians in China and to kind of make peace with Beijing, Pope Francis and some of his uh, supporters uh, decided that they were going to look at signing a deal with Beijing to kind of normalize relations, so to speak. Now, one of the problems with this deal that they ended up signing is that it's not public. No one actually knows what's in it, which is a bit disturbing and is, and is a hallmark of Chinese uh, kind of Belt and Road uh, agreements around the world and kind of influence peddling agreements. Um, but anyway, what what uh, the, the end result, although we don't know all the details, was that 
bishops would effectively be co-appointed by Beijing and Rome. However, it seems that since subsequently all that's happened is pro, uh, pro-Catholic bishops have been chucked out and pro-communist ones have been put in, and they're effectively uh, Communist Party officials. And the underground church has been entirely dissolved because it lacks any legitimacy now um, that the agreement recognizes the official Chinese state patriotic association as the real Catholic church in China. And so it's not unfair to say and this is my understanding of it, that Pope Francis may, or, or his acolytes, because it's never clear in these matters how much the Pope is actually involved in the details, um, have sold out Catholics across China, effectively putting them under the control of the Communist Party of China. Which I think out of all the Popes in, <laughs> in history, this is, if, if this is indeed the case of what has happened, this ranks as one of the most shocking betrayals of of uh of catholics that i think uh, a pontificate has ever possibly pulled off um and that's that that to me is very disturbing uh but it also kind of suggests oh and that, that here's here's the rumor that's been added on top of this now this is completely unproven but it has been alleged by enemies of the communist party in china um and by some people critical of the catholic of the catholic uh this current pontificate is that in exchange for uh, basically towing Beijing's line, uh, the church has been given a large sum of money by the communist party. Now we don't really know this because the details are secret and some people who are critical of Pope Francis think this is rubbish, but it's, it's this, this would make some sense because at the moment the Catholic church is in a bit of a financial hole. Um, so I think that this is very disturbing because it suggests, if this is true, that the Communist Party of China has managed to subvert one of the world's oldest and most influential religious organizations to its will, um, which I think has profound implications for the sort of emerging global cold war between, you know, uh, the sort of, I guess you could call it the free world and the communist influence world again for uh, cold war to electric boogaloo yeah so gabriel as someone who doesn't really follow this stuff what do you take what do you take away from this story do you buy it uh it, the, does your view change at all on pope francis um do you think that this is an ominous sign of china's ability to influence global institutions yeah let's just give a little context to that last point about uh catholic church Wealth. The Vatican alone is estimated to have wealth of between ten and fifteen billion dollars, uh, but its real estate value across the world might be substantially more than that. Uh, the thing about the Catholic Church is got so it's got a lot of fixed assets. Uh, doesn't necessarily have that many liquid assets, uh, so it can get cash strapped, and it's got a lot of salaries to pay. I think that. I want to just contextualize this with uh, a step back into why, you know, so this is a huge story. This is, uh, we, we, I think we're putting the caveats in that need to be put in. The agreement is a cult. We're not really sure what the terms are. It's not 100% clear. But if uh, the interpretation that's been tabled is correct, it is it's you know it's 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 a huge story it's one of the biggest stories of the last 20 years and yet it's hardly been covered 
and we started this by saying that something about the way that journalism works tends to leave religion out, uh, despite how important it is to a lot of people's lives. And I just want to get back to that for a second. So one of the reasons, as Nick correctly points out, is that atheists, agnosts are disproportionately uh, uh, well represented in in journalism and in academia. But there's another reason which I think traces back to another one of the upshots of the Catholic Church scandal in our lifetime starting in 2001. It was dwarfed, uh, the spotlight story, the spotlight revelation in Chicago was dwarfed, uh, or Baltimore, was dwarfed in the first uh, moments by 9-11. But then it came to the forefront. And both of these stories turned out to have a, a similar interpretation amongst many. And, and that was that there is this sort of civilizational contest, which is really between religions, that the greatest contest that there is is a religious contest. And that's a, that's a, an idea that, you know, has been around for as long as there've been religions, but it sort of vacillates between being at the front of people's minds and the back of their minds. And uh, this came back to the front of people's minds. And one of the contests was, you know, here we are fighting Christians against Muslims. It's like Christendom against Dar al Islam all over again. And that was really ironic because uh, the Afghani war against the Soviet Union in the 80s, the war that kind of broke the Soviet mil military's back, and in so doing, precipitated in the minds of many Soviets the collapse of the Soviet Union in a way that a lot of people in the West didn't see coming, was largely sponsored by the CIA and by America. And, uh, and American senators really did go into Afghanistan and say, you know, we both believe in God, whereas the Soviets are atheists. And so the war that really matters is between the religious and the atheists. Uh, and that's why we're on your side, Afghanis, and we want to help you beat the Soviets back. And so we're going to buy you guns and rocket launchers, RPGs, all kinds of goodies. Uh, which the Taliban would then use against the Americans when the Americans came back to say, no, 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 here's what's going on. Well, when the Taliban came to say, here's what's going on. You know, there's a war between Christianity and, and Dar al-Islam. So that was one of the things that was happening. And then the other thing that happened was the, the Soviet line that it's really about secularists against religious people. That was then taken up by uh, some of my favorite writers when I was a teenager, uh, Richard Dawkins, when I was 13, uh, uh, that's in 2003, this is sort of long before The God Delusion, uh, his books, The Blind Watchmaker and The Selfish Gene, were two of my favorite books in grade eight. When I was kind of feeling lonely, uh, I'd go to the library and read those and cackle away. But Dawkins and Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, The Four Horsemen of the Atheist Apocalypse, over over a period of time, really with Dawkins at the forefront with the God Delusion in 2006, uh, launched the idea that being an atheist is not something that you should be ashamed of, that you should actually be proud of it. And I think that's a good idea. If you're an atheist, just like being anything else, like that shouldn't be something that you're afraid to say out loud. Uh and that book did help me with that because, in two, you know, when I was in the middle of high school, I was an atheist. 
I, there, there were paradoxes in the Christian doctrine that I couldn't reconcile myself to, and I gave up on praying. And it was heartbreaking in many ways. Um, and then it was something that I only talked about with a few friends. And then I read the book, and then I was like, oh, okay, I shouldn't be ashamed, you know. So that's the good side of it, of of that sort of atheistic movement. But the bad side of it was that it became is that this team, this esteem team contest developed where people try to say atheists are better than religious people. And the way that the way that so many of those debates degraded was that you'd have an atheist and you'd have a religious person on a stage together or writing at each other eventually over Twitter, but this started before Twitter and the social media, so you can't blame it on that. And the atheist would say, look at the look at the fourth crusade, look at the other crusades, look at the uh, child molestation, look at the condolences of, of fascism in Italy and in Germany, look at the condolences of uh, brutal imperialism in Russia in the 19th century. The church has a terrible record, uh, and therefore Christianity is terrible. And the same for... Uh, uh, for, 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 for Dar al-Islam. Look at all the terrible things that have happened in the name of Allah. Uh, and uh, because bad things have happened and there have been bad people who've called themselves Muslims, therefore all Muslims are bad. And then the religious person would come back and say, well, look at Stalin. He was an atheist. Look at Hitler. He really wasn't, you know, I don't think Hitler was an atheist, but he believed he was God or he believed that the Aryan race was divine. Uh, so an uh, atheist he, by he, traditional standards. He also had some sympathy for Germanic paganism, but thought that it should just be updated. Yeah. So so Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, the biggest mass murderers of the 20th century, all are atheists. Or 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 if they have a, a, a deistic quality, it's you know they they believe that they themselves are God or that some other funny thing is God. Uh, therefore, all atheists are terrible, and only. Uh, true uh, Christians or true Muslims or true religious believers uh, can be moral, and if you're an atheist, then you then you then you consign yourself to some kind of rational egoist uh, amorality where it's just pursuing selfish ends. Um, this this in our lifetimes, I believe, this was the debate that has framed every other debate that's gone wrong since. It's framed the way we think about colonialism. It's framed the way we think about geopolitics, about America. It's framed the way we think about capitalism. This sort of esteem team trick where you where you look at a large group, you find the worst example of the group, and then you say everything's as bad as that. And in my group, everything's as good as the best person in my group. And and the best thing with the religious debates is they always end up debating about whether Einstein was religious or atheist. Because if he was atheist, then that proves that atheism is great. And if he was religious, that proves that religion is great. And it's so stupid. It's such a stupid way of doing things. And now it's race. Race is exactly like that. Find the worst white person you can find. Therefore, all white people are terrible. It's the same with capitalism. Find one bad capitalist. It's all terrible. Colonialism either has to be a, like a gift to humankind or it has to be pure evil. There's no kind of, you know, pairing apart the good from the bad, pairing apart good interpretations from bad interpretations. And and I do really like... And this, uh, yeah, this is a, yeah Sorry, as you said, this is... A, 
I do really like Kwame Anthony Appiah's line that uh, textual textual fundamentalists are kind of no sorry uh, textual determinists are the religious folk that you need to be the most afraid of. They say there's only one true interpretation of the text, and it's my interpretation. And the reason mine is the only true interpretation is because mine is the original interpretation. Uh, and and those are the guys that end up saying you know stone the queers, uh, uh, burn burn the infidel, and so on. And he's like, here's the common feature between a lot of atheist critics of religion and and some religious people is that they're both textual determinists. The atheists want to be like, if the Bible says stone the queers anywhere, then you have to stone the queers, or else you have to stop believing in the whole Bible. Uh, and 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 the sort of the I think the enlightened position is we can look at a text and we can reinterpret it and we can kind of just forget about some of the bad bits and we can and we can search out a true moral meaning uh, uh, and and that this is a hard job and that this is really the job of the pontiff this is the job of the pope and it's the job in other religions of of their clerics and their priests and their imams and so on is to try and make sense to try and reconcile the paradoxes and the contradictions uh between the texts and and, and this and received wisdom and this and is and, and and people don't cover this because they feel like if you criticize one of these guys or you criticize any religious person then you must be putting all of religion down or if you say something good then you must be putting all of religion ahead of secularism and and so this is why we don't think about it and so if there are any catholic listeners like nothing that we're saying here is against the catholic church per se or against no. christianity yeah. or for or for uh, this is just tr trying to sort of make sense of some human beings and what kind of incentives are leading them maybe away from the path that they pr nominally promised to. So that's a bit yeah. abstract, but I, I think it's useful to try and give that context because this is something that touches people so deeply. So I will say that um, what's interesting, firstly, on the historical point you said about the uh, pontiff interpreting uh, the world and kind of making sense of the text as new information is revealed, uh, you know, this is famously popular the actual in the medieval church we often think of the medieval church as this very intolerant brutal regime and by the standards of today it was but for the time it was a very uh, uh relaxed institution the pope often made allowances for this and that and when science made a new discovery in the middle ages the uh, the church would often say oh, okay well obviously then we misunderstood how the texts were supposed to be interpreted originally because now we've discovered something more. And uh, this is very famously written about by Thomas Aquinas, who viewed uh, sort of faith and like the scientific endeavor as being different paths to different kinds of knowledge, but that weren't in conflict really uh, in, in, in any particular way. They were like sort of complementary with each other. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think you're definitely right that uh, that the sort of binary textual determinism stuff has has shaped pretty much everything. I mean, people talk about this all the time um, in American politics is particularly badly pronounced is uh, nuance has died completely, but that, this is. <laughs> yeah, you bet your red team in America, it's your red team or your blue team, right? Yeah. You, it's like, and if, you, if you're a blue team, you can hardly admit that there was anything good about any Republican policy past or present uh, and if you and vice versa. I will I will say on on the the uh, criticizing the pope and such I would actually consider myself a uh, I wouldn't call myself a fan but I'd call myself sympathetic to the institution of the catholic church I think it often has gotten a very bad rap 
um, in part because of anti-Catholic bigotry in Protestant countries, um, which kind of has created this vision of the Catholic Church as being this kind of enemy of progress, um, which is something that is as equally can be laid at the feet of basically any other institution in the 15 and 1600s, which is, you know, when a lot of the kind of inquisitions and stuff were going on. Um, But I think, I think that it is worth talking about this Pope and how his image, I think for non-Catholics kind of got really solidified in that early moment. This narrative gets spun about how he's going to be in the beginning and then that's the impression that most people have of the Pope. In fact, I'm sure that he probably continues to be the most, one of the most popular Popes among non-Catholics and probably even Catholics um, in, in, yeah. in, in decades or in, or in history even. Um, yeah, just because anyway. they're more famous. They're, the world's more plugged in. So, so yeah. I've got a – I know this, uh, <clears throat> this professor, this sort of theology uh, professor in Europe, who uh, at lunch once I was we were talking about Francis and and the only thing he really wanted to say is that he's a demagogue. And what he meant by that was that uh, Pope Francis is aggressive towards values that most people would classify as conservative in ways that center on his personality. And this is, I want to be really careful here because part of the reason that I like Pope Francis from the beginning was, was, was a kind of religious reason was that he chose for himself the name Francis. So he's the first Pope Francis and Francis, St. Francis of Assisi is probably my favorite kind of historical Catholic figure. Uh, he, he, he wrote my favorite uh, sort of uh, hymns to sing at school. Uh, Make me a channel of your peace. Oh, grant me, Lord, that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. Um, I think that yearning to, to, to sort of, you know, that you pray really to, to be able to help others rather than to have a good time yourself. I think that that kind of struck a chord with me as something that I wasn't getting from anywhere else. No one else was kind of planting that idea as deep as, as, as that hymn did and those words did. And also really liked the line, um, which, which, uh, which uh, our headmaster made me swear to never forget, uh, go forth and spread the good word. If need be, use words. Uh, which which I think is a sign that even at high school I talk too much. Um, but, but that was, you know, that was like Francis's, St. Francis of Assisi's thing, besides being really into t- taking care of animals and all, all kinds of stuff like that. He was a bit of a mendicant monk. He was, he was kind of into uh, living a poorer lifestyle, um, maybe not doing as much talking, maybe doing more kind of alone time and more good deeds kind of stuff. And so not necessarily as intellectual uh, as someone like Thomas Aquinas was uh, in that sort of, you know, writerly verbal way, but I think very, very uh, considered. And, And that sort of walk the walk thing is important. And it's important 
a part of Christian doctrine to draw attention to the needs of the poor and to say that money, commercial success or material uh, luxury is not in itself a good thing. Like, it's it's certainly not in itself a holy thing. So, uh, you, you, you've got to be aware of wealth corrupting you. You've got to be aware of, of the potential of power to corrupt. So, so, Pope Francis seemed to be bringing that message to the forefront. Uh, and, and that's all really welcome. Kind of walk the walk and, and, and guys, let's not get too lost in the glitz and glam. Uh, and, let's, and let's remember what really matters. That's really good stuff. The tricky stuff, and also I've got to say, I thought it was really good when he said, when being asked about whether gays are going to hell, like, you know, it's not for me to judge. I think mean, that's right, and that comports with, with Christian doctrine as I understand it. But when it comes to the sort of administrative side, uh, and when it comes to, yeah, the real politics side, he seems to express, he seems to garner likes from pushing a kind of classic South American socialist line. Yes. Uh, that has, that's proven destructive to characters and to, uh, and to lives and livelihoods. So, like, it does feel like, I, I feel like there's a, I, I'm, I'm cautious to say this because I also don't understand it as well as I feel like I should, but I feel a little bit about Pope Francis the way I do about Musi Maimani. So I feel this very strongly about Musi Maimani. I feel I understand what he's done to his party quite well, and I feel like I know the party quite well. I don't know if this is as true for the Catholic Church, but the idea is that Musi Maimani comes in, he seems great, he seems humble, he seems to really want to walk the walk. And then what he ends up doing is trying to secure his position by alienating um, people with views that are unappetizing to like teenage Marxists and champagne socialists and draw himself closer to bigots and uh, neo-Marxists and, 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 and sort of nasty power brokers who just do a very good job of hypocritically making themselves seem holy. And... My money was doing that in a small way. If Pope Francis is cozying up to Beijing and and throwing Chinese Catholics under the bus, th that's like that's like significantly worse than Musi Maimani cozying up to Julius Malema. If Pope Francis is sort of making excuses for for child molesters, it's like much worse than Musi Maimani screwing up his thing about the colonialism tweet where instead of being like, okay, let's think about that, he, he goes for a kind of black and white answer. So, so you know, it, it it's taken some time, but I think a lot of South Africans have reevaluated their position on Maimani. Maybe a lot of Catholics will change their position on, on Pope Francis. I know some Catholics who have already uh, sort of changed their position on him. Uh, but, I, but I don't know, you know, maybe... Maybe one of the things that happens, one, 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 one Catholic friend of mine uh, from Russia said, you know, here's how it works in, in the Catholic Church. If you like the Pope, then the Pope really matters to you. And if you don't like the Pope, then the Bible really matters to you. Okay? So maybe like a lot of bishops are going to just be going back to the Bible. And maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, you know? Uh, I think there's a lot of resilience in that institution for that reason, because what grounds their togetherness is is something 
unreachable by mortal hands. And that's and that's both kind of scary to outsiders and also extremely powerful. And I think in, in so many ways, extremely good. I think it's a very good place to keep the most precious thing you have is sort of beyond the, the reach of, of mortal power grabbing fingers. So maybe it's all uh, going to be fine in the long run. Uh, but of course, we all we actually live in the short run uh, yes. compared to the Catholic Church. But but, you know, I, I also I don't know Well, I kind of feel a bit I feel befuddled about this in a, in that my feeling is a bit similar to my feeling about the Church of Nantes being burnt down, the cathedral at Nantes. Now, my understanding in, is in that's France, the only is, cathedral. Yeah. yeah. So when when the Pope resided in France in the 13th century, I think it was, uh, it was at Nantes. 14th century. It was at Nantes. Uh, yeah, which is in, is in Avignon, is it? In South yeah. France. Yeah. Okay, Nick's going to fact check me. But like that cathedral was, even if I'm not right, but I think I am right, like super important one from a from like a Catholic point of view, more important than Notre uh, no. Sorry, it's not it's not the same place. He didn't stay in uh, in in Nantes. It was Avignon in the south of France, and Nantes is in the west. Um, uh, okay, well, by, that, by, then by that the makes it better. But why by, did yeah. church burn down? And why and why did that kind of why did that not touch sides? And why did St John's Church burning down in Washington D.C. over the road from the White House? Why why was the only thing that I ever heard about that kind of anti-Trump? Because after the church across from his house burnt down, he like he went in front of the church and held a Bible and said, like, we're not going to stand for churches being burnt down. I didn't even realize the church burnt down. I just for two weeks just saw yeah. people on my social media say, screw Trump for like trying to use religion as a people on the way there and using religion. And yeah, yeah. And I, it's just it feels to me like like I, I hate bringing the American president into it. So let's put him right back out. Uh, that's not what this is about. I just feel like any I feel like any political leader who wants to stand up for for the freedom of religion and the freedom of religious association and to defend people against religious persecution is doing a good job. That I'm willing to stand. I I want no. to stand. For, I want to be vocal about supporting people who who want to make a space for people to worship goodness, like. In whatever way, I don't know what the right way is at all. I'm the last person to ask about that. But but I know what's wrong is is using violence to to try and change people's uh, fundamental religious beliefs. That is wrong, and that should be something that states stand up against, and that religious leaders stand mm -hmm. up against. And I don't know. It's just I feel it's, like we're being let down. You, no, definitely, I agree with you completely. And and it is actually one of our. There's a reason why. In a lot of constitutions, freedom of religion is right near the top, um, it, because it is it is actually the beginning of the modern world in a lot of ways. Is when uh, Europe, at least, decides that religious wars are just not really any good. This is after the Thirty Years' War. There's this peace, the Peace of Westphalia, which is which has been signed, um, and this is because the Thirty Years' War has just devastated Central Europe. It's killed sort of like half the population of Germany, somewhere between a third and a half of the population of Germany. It's involved every state in Europe as, as has basically shed blood in it. Um, 
And after this, there's this kind of realization that this and whole... And by the way, the Catholics and the Protestants even change sides sometimes. Like, yes, it looks yes, like they kept switching sides. <laughs> until Protestants were killing other Protestants and Catholics were killing other Catholics. Precisely. So it got very messy and politics got interwoven with religion in very ugly ways. And it, it, it was after that, that that the Europeans realized that this whole you know, completely at each other's throats over religion thing was not going to work out and they had to reach some kind of peace agreement. So in the end, they came up with a fairly sort of authoritarian uh, thing to that, which is that each state will have its own religion and we won't fight over religion too much anymore. But it, it begins to set the stage for freedom of religion, which in a lot of ways comes to eventually, uh, uh, you know, become a fundamental part of all liberal societies from that point forward. And the Americans, when they founded their republic, look across the sea at Europe, they see the complete chaos that sort of the intertwining of politics and religion has caused and the suffering and the misery. And so they they put in their constitution that the federal government will not have an established church because they realize that the moment you have an established church, and it doesn't have to be a religion in the traditional sense, it can be communism, which you know often yeah. operates you know, as, a, as a kind of religious doctrine or Nazism or whatever, um, that just crushes all dissent, you inevitably will get tyranny and you will inevitably get suffering, uh, yeah. no matter how you operate. So I, I want to add something to that, which is a sort of argument for freedom of religion that comes from a Catholic. I can't remember who, but I read about this in a Burso Echo uh, in, the, in the 13th century. Um, and the argument went like this. The state is a coordination of violence, right? They're the guys with the guns, at the time with the swords, okay? And a religion, those are the guys who are trying to, the religious leaders are the guys who are trying to uh, point you to a path of, of, of a moral and virtuous life, an ethical life, a good life. Now, the thought was, from the church's point of view, we want a separation because... If we have the guns, if we as the church have the guns, if the Pope's in charge of, you know, if the Holy Roman Emperor really is a holy figure or, or you know, anything like that. If the church has the guns, then it's no longer possible for the priest to respect someone's free will in trying to convert them or in trying to uplift them or in trying to preach to them. Because there's always this background coercive element of I'm armed, you're not armed. And so from the state side, it is like we want to divorce church and state so that we reduce the likelihood of kind of dogmatic, ideologically driven warfare. And from the church side, it's like we want to divorce church and state because only by depriving us of guns but protecting us with those guns from other people who might want to persecute us, can we go about the business of tapping into people's free will, which is something that all major religions acknowledge as being mm. sort of the source of the, I think of, the, of the religious experience on earth, is, is the freedom to choose to believe or, or choose to worship or choose to uh, turn against. And, that, also, and I've, I like the, both of those arguments together. Yeah, there's also often, I think, a belief amongst um, not not all religions share this as strongly, but uh, uh, I think I think in, in Christianity it's quite pronounced, which is that when you kind of get involved in politics, it becomes 
you you can make an institution worldly and which is a bad thing from a christian's perspective because then it can be open to sort of material corruption and vice um and this has been a long-running criticism of, of, of opponents of the catholic church has often said this but of religion in general is that it gets corrupted by the world and its ideals are twisted so when religion is involved with the state because the state is the exercise of power and violence it inevitably will lead to the corruption of a religious institution. Yeah. So you need, so, so in the separation, the thing that I'm trying to underline, which is sort of my common theme, I suppose, it, uh, with returning to the thought of the state as a coordination of violence is that you don't want them to be separate as in completely separate. The state plays without a well-functioning state. There is no freedom of religion because you need the guys with the guns to protect peaceful worshipers from persecution by others. You need that protection. You need, just like you need prop to have property rights to own something, you need yeah. to have a government the, that's the willing to step society, in trying to rob you. The factions of society need to be kept from fighting with each other. Freedom of speech. You only have freedom of speech if you can say anything. And if some guy tries to bonk you on the head for saying that, the government will come in and say, no, man, you can't bonk people on the head just for saying uh, glory to Allah or glory to Christ or glory to Yahweh or glory to Buddha or whatever it is, right? You need the state to stop to stop the violence and keep people thinking uh, and feeling and believing and, or, and doing whatever they want to do. Anyway, so I think that uh, I think we've covered sort of the the, the fundamentals and I, and I think we've touched on a very important story at the, at the head of the Catholic Church, if not at the heart. And it is going to be an interesting thing to to watch over for the next coming years. Definitely. I think we better wrap up in the next five minutes. So yeah, uh, hopefully, hopefully, I just want to say as a final thing, I, I hope that that the story I've yeah. told here is proven wrong by historical analysis, and that really what kind of seems to be going on here actually was not the case, and that the situation has, is is far more complicated. Than it appears on the surface and i suspect there will be a little bit of that coming out of the historical wash um but this is a decisive moment for the catholic church i think in a lot of in a lot of ways um, it's going to shake the institution for a long time to come uh, how it deals with this deal with china and and some of the things that this pope has done or at least you know some of the continuities and problems he hasn't fixed as well which is uh, what he was elected to do um, and honestly, I hope I hope it is a, it is an institution that has provided a lot of good for a lot of people, and I hope that it, that it can recover, and that it can raise itself up to heights that it has never experienced before, um, especially in terms of its 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 freedom from from these from from vice and politics. Yeah, um, I'm quite optimistic anyway. for the. I I want to fin finish on the Catholic Church by saying I'm optimistic about it when I compare it to, for example, the Russian Orthodox Church. Which, which unfortunately, so so state. We we've been talking about the separation of church and state. The United Kingdom is an interesting case where Her Majesty, the Queen of England, is both the head of the state and the head of the church. But on but on in both cases, it's merely nominal, right? So they're conjoined in this purely symbolic way. There's no real influence of power brokering happening there. By contrast, the the Russian Orthodox Church, Russia uh, has had a really terrible time in the 90s, in the 2000s, trying to get its act back together. And in the 2010s, what ends up happening is that 
yearning for some kind of way to glue the world's largest country together, the Orthodox Church has emerged as the cement that is officially used, and there's widespread allegations that, I mean, there's so many churches being built in Russia that, like, one of the nice ways to, one of the tenderpreneurship gigs that they've got going there is in the church building business, a lot of power brokering with corrupt politicians, allegedly, and a lot of overt returns to the thought that what makes the Russian people special is that they're somehow God's chosen people. And and many, many Westerners won't be familiar with this thought, but Russians really do, a lot of Russians really do think of Moscow as being the third Rome. So the thought is Rome is the real center of the of the church until it isn't until the schism and then which is in the 1100 12th century somewhere around there and then uh constantinople kind of takes over that position and then when it gets sacked in the fourth crusade moscow takes over that position and moscow thinks of itself in this way because it um it thinks of itself as being the central power that lifts the Mongol yoke. It's the great decol. Moscow thinks of itself as being the first great decolonial capital in the world. And it decolonizes sort of white Christians from sort of brown looking pagans or Muslims, mostly Muslims, I suppose, by the, by the end of it. And, and that idea I've, 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 I'm deeply suspicious of when you combine race with religion, and it's not as overt now as it's been. But there's some, some, uh, some of that sort of in between the lines that I'm starting to feel a bit. Not everywhere, but in some places, and I'm very worried when you combine church and state in the way that seems to be happening there. And so I'm not saying even that's beyond redemption. Far from it. But but I've, I've I feel much more worried going to. Uh, Russian monasteries that I've been to where I see just like dozens of brand new German uh, black sports cars with black tinted windows and then you know these dudes with the long beards and the long robes stepping out and the businessmen with the long beards with the no beards and the trophy wife stepping out and then sort of exchanging pleasantries and potentially doing deals. There's just something about it that makes me Feel that like if the if the that that what the Russian Orthodox Church needs is a Francis, is someone who's going to speak to those values of tolerance, of um, of celebrating the poor, of some suspicious suspicion for wealth, of trying to divorce the church from from business and from power, um, and yeah, so it just feels like Francis should be head should be the head of the Russian Orthodoxy. And that, and that, like maybe Benedict should be, you know, or some more technocratic kind of administrator should be the head of the the Catholic Church. But maybe that's just silly. But anyway, that that's kind of how I, that's kind of the the the, the wishful thinking way of going about things. Anyway, let's wrap this episode up with our yeah, yeah. our our winter our wintry into spring classic of making recommendations to you guys for other things to check out. Nick, yeah. what do you? What's hot? Um, I don't know what's hot, but I can tell you what I've been up to, um, which is very rarely the same thing as what's hot. 
Uh, and in this case, I've been listening to what's called the Timmer podcast, um, which is about the famous, or not so famous, he's kind of moderately famous, I guess, uh, 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 Central Asian warlord, Tamerlane, he's sometimes called in the West, uh, who was kind of a successor of Genghis Khan in some ways, uh, who was responsible for probably about 17 million deaths uh, in his bloody swath of conquest across Central Asia, Iran, and Turkey to, in, uh, in the, the modern places that he that he conquered. Um, he left quite an impact on that part of the world. In fact, uh, the president of Afghanistan recently had significant protests against him by uh, some of the minority groups because he had blamed Tamerlane for destroying large parts of Afghanistan's traditional agriculture infrastructure um, back in the 1400s. <laughs> and this was considered such an insult to sort of, I think, Uzbeks in, in Afghanistan that they protested his government and said that uh, it was evidence of discrimination against them. So he still casts a shadow over a part of the world that a lot of people, I think, don't really understand. Um, and so it's called the Timmer podcast, and you can find it pretty much anywhere, iTunes, Spotify, those places. Um, quite fascinating, the guy who I'm only into episode two so far, but the guy who hosts it is he's got quite a good sense of humor um, and it's quite fun. Gabriel, what are your recommendations? Well, so I'm going to I'm going to get my fiance to listen to the Timber podcast immediately because she is part Uzbek. And I think uh, <laughs> totally I ignorant. Think, about her I think Tamerlane is probably the most famous Uzbek in history, which is not a very disputed title. <laughs> not the highest bar to cross. Uh, but I'm gonna <laughs> when I go home for dinner, I'm gonna check if she's even heard of him. Uh, but that's a great recommendation, dude. Um, I'm gonna recommend w what I've been up to this weekend was gardening. Uh, it it really w w at the lowest point in my life five years ago, a uh, bit of gardening really really was good for my mental health. Um, and uh, spring is coming. There's some nice deals uh, at the nurseries. I've been to a couple and got some got some goodies. And uh, as it happens, there's there's a nice thing to that, which is that St. Francis of Assisi uh, was was a big gardener. He he kind of thought if you if you're not finding like anything holy or good or or meaningful, maybe like plant a tree or flower or some grass or maybe just go like listen to the birds sing um yeah. so i'm i'm that's kind of banal but i think there's also something beautiful in the garden so you if you have a chance go give it some love yeah no excellent excellent suggestion anyway i think that's it for today we hope you enjoyed it um please let us know what you think and uh we'll catch you next time on two crickets and thorn tree cheers everyone